what we make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Our love is what we make of it. Sex for smart people. That means you. Oh, hi. Welcome to Sex for Smart People. Yay. It's another one. We did another one. Yay. Um, today on this episode, we talk with Cole Park. Cole is the LGBTQ rights researcher at Political Research Associates, um, which mostly means that Cole spends their time uh, co- tracking right-wing evangelical Christians in the U.S. and the role they play in the exportation of homophobia and transphobia around the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, we get into it today. This yeah. one's... We solve religion and racism and gender pronouns. This one, this one's got it all. Um, so we talked to Cole um, and uh, uh, do an interview. Then the three of us will answer some of the questions that you submitted. Um, there's going to be a, then a brief interjection about pronouns, um, uh, which will explain why we also re-recorded the outro to our previous episode. Um, and then we'll do our quickies. Uh, as per usual, um, it's going to be a great episode, and Cole is the bomb, so you should definitely listen to this one. Seriously, yeah. Cole's uh, <laughs> Cole has so much empathy; it's practically a superpower. Uh, but um, before we dig in, actually, so it's February first today, and I want to talk for a minute about Valentine's Day, which I tend to <laughs> ignore, actually. Um, but I know that a lot of people that I care about and respect do place great importance on it and and sometimes feel fraught about it or expectations around it. And so I just want to, um, so a, a issue a challenge and also a point of inspiration. Um, the reason why I choose to ignore Valentine's day is that I think it's just become kind of, it's, it's kind of like a commercialized commodified version of like being told how to express your love and the ways you must express your love. And, Stephanie, um, there's only one way to express your love, and that is for a male-bodied person to purchase dead flowers for a female-bodied person. Yeah, and, and many people know that's silly, and many people do that anyway and still find it special, and, and that's, that's cool if that's your thing, but um, I guess if you, do, if you are someone who celebrates Valentine's Day, maybe think about um, what are the rituals that you're creating around this, or what are... Um, are you know, how, how, I don't know. I, I am into ritual and I think that's awesome. Um, I just am not into holidays that are like the way they are because they're supposed to be this way. And so if you have creative Valentine's day ideas, do let us know. And also, um, a point of inspiration, something that Dave initiated actually while we were partners that I think is so awesome. Um, happy no awesome, reason day. Dave is pretty awesome, but happy no reason day. He would just happy so no often day. just like on a random day, go out of his way to do something nice for me or like, and um, call it happy no reason day, thereby just calling attention to the idea that we celebrate our connection and our love every single day, not just when we're told to, and specifically not when we're told to. Um, and I love that idea, and I think that more people out there should steal Dave's move. Listen, that's ju- just that's just good advice for life. Yeah. Um, I, so I, I hear you uh, about uh, creating your own rituals around Valentine's Day and that that can be a cool thing. I'm not into ritual at all. I say mad to the whole exchange. <laughs> but I do understand where you're coming from and saying that I think that um, uh, what I what I take from that is that it's valuable to um, as you know to um, to not default. And if default here is uh, buying into the social construct that February 14th means, spending ex- exorbitant amounts of money on um, 
on on food and flowers um, that check in with yourself to make sure that that's something that is actually making you and your partner happy. Yeah, um, well said. And also to remember that um, that our worth is not made by uh, by being in a transactional relationship so that if there's not somebody um, that you're super looking forward to going out for a super expensive meal with or buying flowers for that hey you're enough and that there's no need to there's no need to to press for it you're you're doing just fine oh thank you for going there oh man I wholeheartedly we like you not surprising yeah Yeah. Um, we like you just the way you are (laughs) indeed for whatever that's worth um, so yeah, let us know if you have ideas and thoughts or objections about what we've said about Valentine's Day, or let us know the way that you're creating your own rituals. And um, as I want always, to find a Roman priest, lock him in jail, and maybe execute him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, is that what, is that the origin story of Valentine? I don't. I think so. Isn't that right? Is that what? That's the. That's the. That's. Uh, Valentine's man's origin story is that is that what happened? I'll look. It I up. don't even Sorry. know. I don't even know. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll look it up. Um, but yeah, we are as ever so glad and grateful to be in conversation with all of you. And um, please let us know your your thoughts and ideas at any time. Send us questions, objections, whatever. Uh, you can find all our info on the website sexforsmartpeople.com, and also of course find us on Facebook and Twitter, and and subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already. Those are all things that are possible to do. Indeed. And now on to this episode. Hooray! Oh, hi. Welcome to Sex for Smart People. I'm Dave, and my preferred pronoun is he. I'm Stephanie, and my preferred pronoun is she or they. And I'm Cole Park, and my preferred pronouns are they, them, and their. Excellent. And... Oh my god, Cole, I'm so thrilled that we have you here. Um, I just, from the first time that I met Cole, I was just really inspired by the way that they um, operate in the world. Just um, uh, They were leading an anti-oppression workshop at this uh, symposium that we were both at. Yeah, I'm so glad to be connected to both of you now. Um, I think... Machias, Maine is a special place for the combining of lots of amazing souls, and I'm mm. really grateful that Stephanie and I connected there. Yeah, we were up at uh, the Beehive Collective in mm-hmm. August, which was awesome. Um, I haven't met Cole yet, but I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about this whole thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, good. Um, so we'll kick things off as we always do, and what is your relationship to relationships? Well, as I've been thinking about this question, the the word that keeps coming back is reflection, that uh, relationships offer uh, a reflection of of who we are and, and the health of, of our being with ourselves and, and with the world. Um, so, for example, uh, if if my, my friendships or my intimate partnerships are, are unhealthy, that's likely a reflection of something that is out of, out of sync within me. Um, and, and that same concept can be expanded kind of out into the world when we think about you know, what's going on in the U.S. and how is that reflected within the international relationships that um, 
when we haven't figured out things at home, undoubtedly, we will continue to kind of spread that um, disease out into the world. Um, so as somebody who, who does a lot of work around international issues, um, relationship is, is critical to how we work toward uh, a healthier world. Um, Will you talk a little more in detail about the current work that you're focusing on at PRA? Yeah, so I work for Political Research Associates, which is a small social justice think tank based here in Boston. And our, our tagline is challenging the right, advancing social justice. Essentially what that means is for the last 30 plus years, Political Research Associates has investigated right-wing elements in the U.S. for the purpose of supporting organizers and activists on, on the left in, in doing their work more strategically with better information. Um, so we, we kind of situate ourselves between the academy and activists endeavoring to create uh, resources and information and tools to build a more just world. So specifically, at PRA, I am the LGBTQ rights researcher, and a lot of my time is spent researching right-wing evangelical Christians in the U.S. and the role that they play in exporting U.S.-born culture wars, um, attacks on LGBTQ people, also restrictions on women's reproductive autonomy, out into the world, so into places like Sub-Saharan Africa, into places like Russia and Eastern Europe. Um, also, recently I've been concentrating on that work happening in Jamaica and uh, Brazil and other parts of Central America. What does that specifically look like? Well, um, and how? What do you do with what you, the information you collect? Sure, sure. I think a really good example that, that some people, especially here in Massachusetts, are familiar with is Scott Lively, who is uh, an evangelical pastor based in Springfield, Massachusetts. He is um, also tracked by the Southern Poverty Law Center and is on their, their list of, of um, targets, hate targets, Kind of SPLC keeps track of hate groups in the U.S. and and Scott Lively has made their list. Um, he was one of the instrumental U.S.-based characters in Uganda several years ago, around 2009. Oh, mm. Right. Um, so he traveled to Uganda along with a couple of other U.S. evangelicals and hosted a workshop all about the evils of homosexuality. And shortly after his visit, uh, that was when the, the legislation, uh, the so-called kill the gays bill, was introduced in Uganda. There's no doubt in my mind that the, the connection is clear, and, and other people agree. So currently, under what's called alien tort statute, which is an interesting U.S. legal thing. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't entirely understand how it works, but basically... Alien Tort Statute enables Sexual Minorities Uganda, which is an LGBTQ rights group in Uganda, the ability to sue Scott Lively in U.S. courts for crimes against humanity. Mm. And so that work is being supported by the Center for Constitutional Rights. And um, 
PRA, my, my supervisor, Dr. Kapia Cuoma, who did a lot of the exposing of Scott Lively's role and the role of others in Sub-Saharan Africa. He's actually going to be a part of that case. And, and what's interesting is there's also this really incredible group in Springfield, Massachusetts called the Springfield Coalition Against Hate and Homophobia. And, and it's a group of local activists who realized around 2009 that Scott Lively was their neighbor. And, and so they became concerned with the impact that he was having elsewhere in the world and said, we want to hold this guy accountable. And, and we also want to, in essence, clip his wings. And so the, the goal in bringing to light who Scott Lively really is is not about scaring him out of Springfield, Massachusetts, and more about keeping him here. So preventing him from going to other parts of the world and spreading his his message of mm. of violence and and propagating um, the attacks that LGBTQ people are experiencing internationally. Um, because in fact, Scott Lively just last fall was in Russia where, as, as most folks know, LGBTQ people are experiencing a huge surge in, in attacks, both, both physically and also legislatively. Mm-hmm. So for those of us who don't, for whom this isn't a full-time job fighting against this oppression, <laughs> what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? How can we help? What is it that people who don't have this as, as, as their day-to-day uh, day job can actually do to assist you? Cool. So that's a really excellent question, and one that I wish more people were asking. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So first and foremost, I think it's critical that we recognize and respect that there are organizers and activists all around the world, specifically in these places where attacks are becoming most vicious, who are skilled, who are gifted, who are established in their communities, and and they don't need for us to tell them what to do. In fact, we need to be listening to them and and enabling um, them to, to take the lead in how how we craft a response and how we resist the attacks. Um, so paying attention to what folks in, in Uganda are saying, what, what activists in Russia are saying, is a really critical first step. What I think... Nicole, we're American. I, we we yeah, know better. we're right? American. Totally. <laughs> right. So the unique thing about being in the U.S. is that we have the most access to the folks who are perpetuating um, these anti-LGBTQ messages. And so as Americans, it's our responsibility to stop the export of these attacks here in the U.S. And so we need to hold accountable the folks like Scott Lively, the folks like Rick Warren, the folks like Lou Engel, the folks like uh, Peter LaBarbera. So these are all individuals who live here in the U.S. and, and have you know, li- live in communities where there are countless people who, if they knew what sort of impact they were having internationally, I suspect they would be outraged. Um, but so often the words and actions that 
individuals feel at liberty to take in other countries, they kind of downplay here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so part of the work is educating ourselves and, um, and, you know, reading the reports that political research associates and others like us are producing about these characters, and then working in collaboration with international activists to build up uh, resistance to folks here in the U.S. and to, mm. to really take responsibility for what, what these people are doing out in the world. And that's going to look different depending on your context. So in the case of Scott Lively, it, it makes sense to take him to court. Um, in other cases, identifying what the strategic vulnerabilities of those individuals is going to be different and, and will require creativity and, and require the thinking of a lot of people um, working together to collectively build up a resistance. Hmm. And for anybody who wants to learn a lot more in depth about the efforts that are going on in the states and the uh, the injustices that are being perpetuated abroad, where what are some good resources or things to read? Well, so you can check out our website certainly. Uh, politicalresearch.org is a great place. All of our publications are available for free online. Uh, we also produce um, a quarterly journal called The Public Eye which covers these sorts of topics as well as a broad range of other issues. Um, there's also a, a new documentary out called God Loves Uganda that features Kapia Kwoma, my supervisor. Uh, he mostly narrates the film, and it really helps to connect the dots between the role of U.S. evangelicals and the narrative of, of violence that we're watching play out not only in Uganda and Russia, which are the, kind of the countries that get the most press coverage, but also in Nigeria, in Kenya, in Ghana, um, in Jamaica, all throughout the world. And, and so that's work that I continue to, to do. And, and in fact, a lot of my work in the coming year, though, will be working directly with U.S.-based activists to to really you know, continue to figure out what the best answers are to to your question, Dave, and and so I'm excited to engage with anybody. You're welcome to reach out to me directly um, if you have thoughts and ideas, uh, or if you're interested in who in your community we we might want to um, engage with and and um, hold accountable. Hold accountable. Right. Cool. Um, in terms of uh, engaging he here in the U.S., something that I didn't know about until this week when Stephanie was sending me uh, information about um, your activities was the equality ride that you did with Soul Force, mm -hmm. um, which is very exciting. Can you talk to us about that and what that is? Certainly. Yeah. So uh, I have kind of taken a lot of different paths throughout my life, and Soul Force played a hugely significant role in helping me to come to terms with what it means to be a queer person and what it means to um, come from a very Christian background and to still hold that as part of my identity. And, and so Soul Force is a national organization um, 
perhaps you could even say international. They do a lot of work um, focused on promoting queer justice within religious communities. And so for many years, one of their flagship programs was called the Equality Ride, which is a two-month social justice bus tour engaging specifically with mostly Christian, um, conservative colleges and universities that maintain discriminatory policies against LGBTQ students. Um, so in fact, there are over 200 schools in the country that maintain these sorts of policies. And, and these are the schools that are also producing the future leaders of the Christian right movement. And so to address those, those sources of harm is, is a critical way to kind of work into the future. Um, and not only is, is the work of the Equality Right about confronting those sources of harm, but also reaching out to students in those environments that identify as LGBTQ um, or, or questioning or have friends or relatives and, and supporting them in, in coming to a place of wholeness. So often the message that Christian community um, is kind of known for is this idea that you can't both be queer and Christian. And, and what results is this intense sort of fragmentation. Um, this is true in a lot of areas of, of activism and, and identity work, that you can't both be queer and black. Um, you can't be um, a, I don't, I don't know, you, you know, there, there are all kinds of identities that, that the image that's presented to society says is, is in contrast. Um, and and Soulforce, and, and I would say I also, endeavor to really work toward a place where all people can be whole people and communities can also be made whole. Um, so I got to participate on the, both the 2008 and the 2012 Equality Ride, and, and really it was, it was a life-changing experience for me. Um, so Soulforce is, is still doing tremendous work, and, and I encourage you to keep track of them as well. What does that engagement look like when you're in those communities? Well, it can take a lot of different forms. Um, so sometimes it looks like uh, I mean, well, just to give you an image, you know, we get a big charter bus and we wrap it, meaning like, you know, it's, it's a big queer bus. <laughs> and then we travel. What do you wrap it in? Well, it's, it's a giant sticker. In fact, I don't know if <laughs> okay. you've ever seen like decorated, decorated buses. It's actually oh. a huge, huge sticker. And, and our, you know, our buses say very boldly, like, you know, whatever our tagline for the particular ride is, but generally like, Traveling for justice, like lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer people. So if you can imagine that sort of bus showing up in, say, Clinton, Mississippi, you get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the very first tour in 2006, um, there was a huge amount of police attention, in fact. Um, and that, con- that continues for all five tours that the Equality Right engaged in. Um, there was regularly a pr- police presence because, you know, a bus full of queers, you just never know what might happen. Very dangerous. Sure, there might be a, a dance party might break out. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. People you might know talk to each that. other respectfully. Oh my gosh. Things. You might, like, 
have conversations about consent. And Whoa. There might no. be glitter. This must be stuff. Glitter, no. I know. It's the herpes of the craft world. <laughs> but we love it. We love it. Well, so... Um, I should I should clarify that Soul Force is also an organization grounded in nonviolence. So in fact, we're really not not threatening, um, at least physically, in terms of you know supporting people and rethinking the way that they engage with scripture, engage with church doctrine. Um, yeah, that that is threatening. We, you know, we really do, in some sense, endeavor to um, support people in in questioning a lot of what they've been raised to believe. So some schools are totally open to that conversation. They're like, oh yeah, faith, gender, sexuality, these are relevant topics. Please come on campus. Let's have panel discussions and you can guest lecture in classes and we'll arrange to share meals with with various people. And in other contexts, churches and schools say, no, absolutely not. You're... In short, you're the devil. We don't want you here. And and in those instances, on on some occasion, we have made the choice to um, engage in nonviolent direct action, civil disobedience. Um, so, for example, at Palm Beach Atlantic University in 2008, a group of six of us were arrested attempting to attend the chapel that is on that school's campus. Mm. Um, technically, that was trespassing. Um, we had been invited by students at the school to attend services with them, but the school's administration said that we were unwanted guests. And and so... I remember when Jesus said that about people. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Jesus was the, Wait, the no least hospitable person. Can I... I have to interject that um, in Cole's home in Boston, there is a cat who is indeed named Jesus. It's a really comforting thing. Really, at the end of the day, I mean, I do spend much of my day studying and reading about what right-wing Christians say about folks like me, and then I get to come home and And cuddle cuddle with Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You know what else might make you happy, Dave? Jesus really likes getting spanked. (laughs) He's super into it. We have not yet established a safe word. But Jesus likes it rough, and and I don't know what theologians might say about that, but <laughs> the evidence is here at the Chill Cottage. Well, may I suggest for a safe word, Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani? <laughs> I'll give that a try. Okay. Is, yeah. Dave, Hell is yeah. That your We're safe getting word? deep into the Aramaic references here on sex for smart people. What? <laughs> Um, on that note, <laughs> shall we uh, shall we head to questions? Yeah, sure. All right. So first, just a quick check in. Um, we've really been thrilled with everybody's engagement with the crowdsource questions in the past couple episodes, and thank you so much to everybody who has been writing writing in and who continues to write in. And um, we just want to encourage that every question can be a crowdsource question too. That we'd love to hear from you questions, thoughts, objections, ideas about anything we talk about. Um, but we are this time taking a break from crowdsource question proper to let a few more responses roll in about that question about getting comfortable with cunnilingus. 
And so um, we are not going to do crowdsource question, although we could sing the theme song. Dave? Well, let me just say that, uh, that this is sort of a Pavlovian problem, that now every time I hear you say crowdsource question, I just want to yell, Yeah! <laughs> Like even interrupting you when you're when you're I am, when you're I am about... missing si- singing the theme song. I think we should really do it. Ready? Okay, let's do it then. Crowdsource, Crowdsource question. question. Yeah. yeah! <laughs> oh, that's good. It's, it's very sophisticated. Um, <laughs> I do work as a professional composer. <laughs> it's clear. I really um, like the hemiola. Uh huh. <laughs> the crowdsource question always begins with a lone tremolo. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, Dave. That's Oklahoma. Oh, um, right, okay. But uh, so our first, our first question for today, uh, Dave, will you read it? It's the one that's addressed yeah. to me. Um, it begins. So I did not. Uh, so uh, I'm speaking as the questioner now, <clears throat> Stephanie. Yes. I know that you identify as queer, and that also that your father is an evangelical minister. I'm in college, and I just came out as lesbian to my friends. Although I've known I'm gay for years, I too was raised evangelical, and my family is very devout. We've all been very close over the years, and my being gay is such a huge part of me. I don't know how longer I'll be able to keep this from them. But I know that when I tell them fully who I am, they will be devastated. I still believe in God, and I still believe that God loves me for exactly who I am. But my parents think that homosexuality is a sin, but a sin like an addiction to be overcome, which they think is kind, but which actually undermines my identity. I know this will probably be a years-long process of reconciliation, but I want to be as kind as possible. Do you know of any resources I can look to, or do you have any advice to make any of this easier? Oh, man. I mean, my first response to that is just my heart goes out to you so strongly. And I'm so glad um, specifically to bring this question to the table while we have Cole on board. I would love, are you okay to, to dive in with sure. this one? Yeah. I am so grateful for your question and and really just want to encourage you in in this process of of growing into your full self um, because I think that, that that is ultimately what we're all called to so for me as as I have been doing historically a lot of work around this conflict between Christianity and queerness um, the first part of that journey for me involved a lot of <clears throat> a lot of defensive theology. And there are lots of resources out in the world that will help you kind of dig through what are called the clobber passages. So the, the very few passages in the Bible that I would say are misused to condemn homosexuality. And and soul force is certainly an organization that can provide you with lots of resources to understand that theology more clearly. What's been really important for me, though, in this ongoing journey is also embracing a proactive theology. And what that means is looking at the Bible and, and finding places within Scripture that do validate me as a queer person. Examples of scripture that speak to the experience of gender nonconforming people. Um, And so I think one of my favorite examples is interestingly uh, a piece of scripture that has at times been used to 
to say, you know, you are wrong, you don't exist. Um, and that's the, the creation story. Some might feel more comfortable referring to it as the creation myth. Um, regardless, in that first chapter of Genesis, which interestingly offers two different creation stories, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which, you know, raises questions right from the get-go. Um, Somebody in- accidentally hit reset on the Xbox, so he started over. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um well, so in the creation story, we have what can be a pretty dry account of God creating this and then this and then this and saying it was good. And, and then you get into um, Adam and Eve and, and all of that. Um, but in that creation story, there is a lot that's unsaid. And so, for example, God created light and darkness. God also created dawn and dusk, which in my mind are the most beautiful times of day. Um, God created land and water. God also created the ebb and flow of the tides. And so even though those things are not spoken of, we know that they exist and we know that they're good and beautiful. And for me, especially as a genderqueer person, I find a lot of, of hope and affirmation in that, recognizing that, you know, there's a lot that is in between, and, and that too is good. Um, that, we can, that we can kind of carve out that space and, and find a lot of love in it. So, you know, the Bible doesn't have to be completely thrown out the window. There's actually still a lot, a lot of richness to be um, culled out of that space. I love that perspective, and I guess... Like, do you have any advice to make any of this easier? I really like that as a big picture starting point, that it's not that faith and queerness are, have to be totally irreconcilable. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I also do just want to state the obvious here. In, in my personal journey with my family and Christianity and queerness and all that, time really, really was the most powerful salve and... Um, there was a, a time when things were especially difficult with my family, but over time, just like me um, presuming fewer things about them has allowed them to presume fewer things about me. And, and there, um, we have, in my particular case, which I know is very fortunate and, and not everybody has this experience, but we, we are still very close, um, even though we... We do really hold each other in love, even though we see the world in such different ways. But um, it's taken years to get to that point. And so just at, at the moment you're in, it's so exciting, as Cole said, coming into your full self. Um, and just to, um, I don't know, in, in the, the, the moment of opening up probably will be rough. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that it, it, it is possible to, to hear and see each other, hopefully, in, in many situations o- over time. And, and, or if not with your family of origin, that um, just queer community can be so fucking awesome. And, um, and a lot within the queer community, we talk even more about chosen family. And for those that aren't as fortunate as me, that can have some somewhat of a reconciliation with family that that queers are 
fierce about chosen family and community. And I actually, something that Cole said this morning, I actually wonder if you feel comfortable sharing when you, um, that you used to emphasize the, the suffering when you, when you speak. Right. Yeah, so I think a lot of times in, in engagement with um, conservative Christians or, or just, just your run-of-the-mill conservative, um, it's, it's important to communicate to them the suffering that queer people experience at the hands of um, right-wing evangelicalism and, and other forms of oppressive community. Um, but also, it's really fucking awesome to be queer. And, and I wish, in fact, that, that we could invite more people into the gifts that queerness has offered me in terms of thinking about gender in new ways, thinking about relationship in new ways, thinking about sexuality and family in new ways, um, thinking about theology in new ways. And, and it's, it's really a tremendous gift. And as people, you know, I, I cringe whenever I hear the argument that, that you often hear made about, like, I, I didn't choose this, I was born this way. Maybe, you know, that's, that's true for plenty of people. But, you know, if, if this was a choice, I would absolutely choose it. Because I, I, love, I love my life and I love the community that I live in um, and, and the questions that it raises and the challenges and the gifts that come with it. Um, and just, I, as you were talking about kind of your experience with family, I was reminded of um, my relationship with my grandfather, which is, has been sometimes challenging and fraught. He is a, uh, he's 97 years old. He actually lives in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, I don't know if he knows Scott Lively, probably not, but <laughs> it'd be funny if they did. He is, is a, he's a retired Episcopal minister and is a fairly conservative person who has in the past written extensively about uh, healing ministry, including the idea that homosexuality is a sickness that must be healed. And that was such an incredible source of pain for me for so long, but not a thing that I knew how to engage with him about. And especially as he's gotten on in years, it, it felt um, like it would... It would just, you know, why rock that boat at this point in his life? Um, and so there was a time when I, I really felt like I was doomed to just never experience any sort of healing in that relationship. But it was, I guess, about two years ago, uh, I went out to visit just by myself, and one of the things that I love doing is baking bread. And so I had baked this loaf of bread, and I, I went to visit my, my grandpa and my grandma in Springfield, and I arrived just as my grandpa, in his 90s, still very active and vibrant, was on his way out the door to take communion to another woman in their community who can't often make it to church. And so he invited me to go with him. And, and in preparing his little Eucharist to-go box, his little lunch box, um, rather than putting the traditional stale wafers in, he cut a small piece of the bread that I'd made and put it in the box. And then we, we went, and, and as we were sharing in that ancient, ancient ritual of this holy meal, um, which is a ritual you know I participated in probably thousands of times in my life, um, 
something really magical happened as as he was going through the rites of that of that of that ritual and in the moment that he broke and blessed the bread i realized that he was actually taking something from me and of me and calling it holy mm-hmm. and in that moment i experienced this deep deep healing that i had thought was impossible and certainly my grandfather hasn't apologized for the things that he's said and written but sometimes healing comes in ways that you would never expect and and if we're open to that um i think that you know our our hearts can can continue to to grow and expand in relationship with with those who who sometimes don't understand us mm. <sighs> stephanie would it be okay for me to um to share the story of when we were talking to your nana about evolution sure <laughs> I'm all of, for talking about my nana at, at any possible opportunity she's fierce a sort and of similar thing happened a couple of years ago when Stephanie's uh, nana was 92 at that point I think 91 uh-huh. And it came out of something she said that was unintentionally racist, which she didn't know what was happening. But Stephanie pivoted it really interestingly to call her on it without making it totally clear that that was happening. It was kind of epically cool. But it ended up with Nana saying to us, but you don't really believe in evolution, do you? And we both said, oh, yeah, totally. And she said the the line that is said at that point, which is, well, if we come from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? And I said, oh, I'll show you. And I grabbed a piece of paper and a pen. And for about 10 minutes, I explained how evolution works and sketched out how it works and how it wasn't that we came from monkeys. It was that we came from proto-monkey-like things that then split and went into what the monkeys that we know are and now and then proto-humans and us. And so they drew out how it all works and took a while. And um, and at the end of it, so this is a 92-year-old Catholic woman, right, who, uh, who if anybody is going to be set in their ways, it is likely to be this woman or her Lutheran counterpart, right? So... Um, Uh, At the end, she looked at the chart and paused for a second and said, I see where you're coming from. And then took another moment and said, you know, it's funny. When you start to think about things, it can get pretty scary. (laughs) And I had this moment of, I, I would have said that that was impossible. And despite how, I'm not expecting her to have converted since then to take up the cause for, for, uh, evolutionary atheism or anything like that but i would have said that even that moment was impossible because when it comes to engagement with people who have uh or communities or groups that have a history of suppression i tend to in my heart of hearts think that that sort of engagement is going to be fruitless and so to give a devil's advocacy position for sort of where you're coming from cole about this openness i just want to speak for the people who react against this by throwing the baby out with the bathwater and say that I totally get it. Mm-hmm. And I totally feel for you and kind of am in that camp too, where I think, okay, so this uh, faith has, and, and this organization of faith has been such a tool of oppression for so long that maybe that why even engage with it anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, uh, if if I lose the, the 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 comfort and beauty or even the sense of truth that I get from the faith, you know what? It's worth losing that to not have to engage with dickheads who have been oppressing me and my people for so long, or anything like that. 
And so I did have that moment with Stephanie's grandmother, who is an amazing person. And I think I would say that I think that that moment is probably pretty rare, even that she was willing to hear us out um, and willing to willing to consider it. But how how do you find the I don't know the strength, the wherewithal, the empathy to to not just say you know what fuck you fuck off it's been hmm. it you've been using your faith as a bludgeon against me for recorded history at this point um where do you find it in yourself to not just close off to that and tell them to go fuck themselves well so as I said earlier, Soul Force is an organization grounded in the principles of nonviolence, and and it's that study and practice that has really made made it possible for me to sustain myself in work that that does often feel really really f- exhausting um, and sometimes really painful. Um, but one of the lessons that was offered to me through Soul Force is the idea that the opposite of slavery is not freedom. In fact, the opposite of slavery is community. Mm. That if, if an individual is freed from whatever um, form of oppression they're confined by only to wind up isolated, then they haven't actually gained anything. Um, so to be truly free is, is in fact to be in relationship with with your oppressor um, and and so it's from a deep deep desire for healing and a deep desire um, for love that I am able to to look at somebody who has condemned me to hell and and say like no we're both suffering in this situation and, and I want healing for both of us. Um, some, some days that's Whoa. easier than others, <laughs> but it's also the reality that there was a time in my life that I was that person. Um, you know, I, I didn't even begin to come out to myself until I was about 22. Um, and I, I, I thought, you know, um, abstinence was the easiest thing in the world. I could not figure <laughs> out for the life of me why people struggled with that because I certainly was not interested in having sex with boys. Um, and, and I was kind of self-righteous about it. I was like, clearly y'all just need to pray more. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and again, queerness in, in a sense has been a tremendous gift because it was the first time in my life that I had to break a rule a rule that didn't need to be a rule in the first place. Um, but it was this really beautiful slippery slope in the sense that once I began saying, like, well, you know, maybe this like heteronormative equation that I've been told I have to plug into isn't something that I have to plug into, like, then it brings up all kinds of questions about other stuff, like capitalism and white supremacy and... <laughs> ableism and, and all of these things um, and for me that has been a gift of queerness that that encouraged me to ask questions and and encouraged me to rethink the things that I've been taught about the world um, and I just really 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 want I, I want to evangelize people in a way <laughs> um, 
and and invite other people into collective liberation, hmm. which is what our our ultimate goal is. That's gorgeous. Oh boy. Okay. I kind of I kind of want to talk about this forever, but I also do, <laughs> maybe it's time to go to our next question. Let's do it. What even else is there to talk about? <laughs> I know. I know, for real. <laughs> <sighs> okay. I don't well, think we've I... talked about snail mail yet, but I'm just going to put a plug in. Oh, Cole rocks the sna- snail mail. <laughs> well, if everybody in the U.S. sent one more letter a year, the USPS would be fine. So, <laughs> go buy a stamp. Oh my gosh, I love the post office so much. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's one of my... It's, it, it's, if I had to list my favorite things about the U.S. government, really, the USPS would be on it. It's... it's <laughs> You're really good at snail mail too, Dave. Well, I'm tr- I'm trying. It's uh, it's it's such a it's such a beautiful thing, and I have ideas for it. If you're interested in my ideas for what, how the U.S. Postal Service can uh, can change its mission going forward into this 21st century, please email me at davidjmcgee@gmail.com. <laughs> I have ideas. You do brilliant. Okay, we'll launch a campaign. Sounds okay. good. Um, so our next question is, I'm a white guy, and in the last year, I've dated two different women who each told me, sometime during the first two dates, that she would never date a black man. Racism is a big deal breaker for me, even for a casual hookup, but I didn't otherwise get a racist vibe off of either lady. Making it more complicated, one of the women has a black father, although you'd never know it unless she told you. Anyway, what's an anti-racist to do in a scenario like this? Accept these preferences as legit or head for the hills? Oh my god. My first thought is, how did this come up? In well, what? isn't the first question you ask on a first date always, hey, would you date a black guy? <laughs> I mean, I always lead off with that. <laughs> I don't, that's not true, I'm sorry. I have pulled my hat over my eyes because I don't even know where to begin with this. Mm-hmm. Cole, you are wise and caring and smart <laughs> and, and, and empathetic in all things. It seems like, what, what's your initial reaction to this? Well, so I think, um, podcast listeners, you, you might not have figured this out already. Um, and, and so a good place to start is to you know, name our own identities. And so I am, I am a white person who endeavors to be an anti-racist. And, and part of that process of of learning and working has been to recognize that as somebody who benefits from uh, a system of white supremacy that has been built into the very fabric of this country, um, I am inevitably racist. So just because I maybe don't say overtly racist things on the regular, um, try not to, inevitably you know, we, we make mistakes and hopefully we learn and, and change. Um, because I get to walk in the world with a whole lot of privileges that people of color don't have. Um, I continue to benefit from white supremacy and, and therefore it's my responsibility to be proactive in, in deconstructing those systems. And one of the ways that we need to do that is to lean in to other white folks 
um, folks who, who we likely have more access to in um, confronting issues of racism um, and, and aim to, to learn and educate. So we're all kind of, well, I would like to think that we're all on a journey toward deconstructing white supremacy. Um, and we're all in different places on that journey and, and it's not a linear path. Um, and so to cross somebody off the list because they um, have, have said something or, or done something, um, that, that isn't necessarily moving us in the direction that we want to go. Of course, we do need to, you know, take stock of what kind of resources and energy and capacity we have for a, any given conversation. Um, but, but we can't just distance ourselves from, from folks who, who aren't, um, conscious of, of the role of, of race and racism in our society. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder so much about context here. Um, I guess my instinct on a very micro level, agreeing with everything that you've said and on a macro level, is just like, well, ask more questions. <laughs> like, I think <laughs> I too in this, if, if I found myself in this situation, I might find it such a turnoff that I would just... Uh, just just slam the door on that connection or or actually not because not even because it was such a turnoff but because I would feel uncomfortable even asking further because it might betray a way that I talk about something as racist or it might mean that I need to dig deeper within myself about that and so I can see how this would be just total deal breaker um, but also I can see how it could be great to to look to understand better where these people are are coming from, and um, a way that my bandmate Jillian consistently inspires me is when I I tend to get, and this is revealing of more examination that I have to do of myself. I tend to care about being so respectful and politically correct that I sometimes don't engage even where I should. Or it keeps me from mm-hmm. talking to someone because I'm not sure of like the the right or most respectful way of engaging with somebody. And Jillian always inspires me. She's just like, everybody's a human. Ask questions. Relate as a human. And so I think, I think there's something to that in this scenario that if, if one or both of these women that you're dating is... Um, the, the broader picture is there seems somebody who would be into not perpetuating oppression uh, to, to, to dig deeper and sit in that conversation, even if it's uncomfortable. Who knows if you should date them or not, but, even, but as long as you're within that one conversation, right. you may it, as well sit with that complexity for a minute. It, it so, may, in fact, end up being surprising if you know, perhaps you're, you're talking to somebody who has actually put a lot of thought into this and realized that um, too often white folks pursue people of color in a way, in a form of exoticization, mm. right? And and so maybe maybe these are very conscious people who are aiming to resist that tendency. Mm. Um, but yeah, as you know, as you were saying, Stephanie, too, like, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. And and in terms of anti-oppression work, what I often have to remind myself is that if I'm not making mistakes, I'm not doing the work. Mm. I also, uh, so, uh, in, in the sense of 
Okay, in, a, in, in the spirit of being the change you want to see in the world, there's something that I have been trying to take on to myself that I think that if you're listening to this, you should also try to take on to yourself. Which, because I know the right way to do things, so <laughs> listen to me. Um, which is that um, if... Uh, so, okay, so Louis C.K. has this bit about how uh, being a white male is full of so much privilege that you can't even hurt our feelings. Like... <laughs> What could you possibly say that would hurt our feelings? He says, honky? What am I going to do about that, right? Okay, so he... so, But then thinking about that, I think that the answer is actually racist, right? So if a white person is called a racist, that that's the worst thing you can call them. And so when anything... When anything that any that that come, I I, f- I feel like I've seen this before. That when somebody is, is being told that what they're doing is racist, the reaction is full throated, vehement denial and saying, "I am not a racist." That um, we need to not do that. And if somebody points out that something we're doing is racist, um, the thing to do is to shut the fuck up and listen, because mm. it's not saying. There's a difference between saying, you are a racist. This is an identity that is on you and eternal. And saying this thing that you're saying or doing has racist overtones, connotations, or results. And that while we can agree that the perfect, and this perfect being the enemy of the good thing, will be not being racist, let's strike that as, uh, as impossible and say that the next thing we can do is to examine uh, what we're doing and saying for those possibilities and that the best way to examine that is to listen to the people who are potentially being affected by it and to and to hear them mm-hmm. um so uh while it's hard my reaction to this dude what wrote in is to say that when somebody to say that would to say that to um call them on it and to say hey that actually sounds pretty racist to me um and there's a possibility that that's going to get them all head up and, uh, and, and you know, uh, angry about being called out on that. But I don't think any good is being done not calling it out on that, especially if this is in the context of attempting to <laughs> potentially create a relationship that, um, you know, that, that becomes deeper. I, I think that no, no good is being done by ignoring it. Um, maybe there's a kinder, gentler way to say that. Like, um, hey, that kind of rubs me the wrong way or, or something. But I don't think that ignoring it is the right move. Yeah, I think when in doubt, turn to curiosity. Mm. Well said. Hey, that's actually a pretty good life lesson. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Oh, we've, have we fixed racism and religion? We, we did it. We're we done. Have, we're Guys, done. Yeah. What sex else for can we smart solve? people, yo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Are uh, we moving on to, to pronouns? Yeah. Okay. So, guys, this is, this is what we're doing. We're fixing religion, racism, and pronoun usage all in one episode. Um, Whoa, dude. The, the Cold next part. one will just be us <laughs> singing about puppies. <laughs> Maybe what well, can we do that? Can the next episode just be us singing about puppies? Singing about puppies? Yeah. Okay, probably not. We'll I'm trying to okay, turn so. to curiosity. Rather than <laughs> <laughs> but I'm That's having difficulty. Yeah. Is that our new code for you're being a dumbass? <laughs> this is going to be really helpful in our ongoing uh, in our ongoing business and creative relationship. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, here's question three. Uh, A close friend of mine recently came out as trans and began transitioning. 
This person used the pronoun they for a while, and now identifies with the pronoun she. I have known this person for a very long time while they were going by he. I absolutely respect whatever pronoun anybody wants to use, and I trust that my friend is transitioning because it is really what is best. I'm doing my best to always use female pronouns as requested, but I feel terrible that I slip up all the time. I know that my friend's transition is way more epic than my struggle with using the correct pronoun, but is there anything that I can do to not slip up so much? I really don't mean to be disrespectful, but I find this a little difficult. Uh, well, the one important thing to remember is that it's not about you, and when you slip up, the the point is, is not to kind of give yourself uh, a, a beating and, and apologize profusely, but to simply apologize sincerely and genuinely, and and move on and um, and and maybe in terms of what you can do to get better maybe just I don't know the next time you're in the shower practice telling a story about that person mm. and just like practice practice is what makes us better I've needed to do that about friends of mine who are, are transitioning or, or using a different pronoun mm-hmm. it's just I like the practice actually telling a story I've done the just like hold this person in my mind and hold this pronoun in my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, check in with your friend um, about, uh, especially something that often comes up is if you all are in public or if, if somebody else makes a mistake around their pronouns, check in with your friend about how they want you to respond in terms of being a good ally. Do they want you to correct it? Um, you know, that, that might change if you're hanging out with their grandma. Um, mm-hmm. but in other situations, you know, if the waitress refers to a whole table as ladies, um, maybe that's the time to say something. Um, and, and just really like having lots of communication about uh, what is, is most supportive and most empowering for your friend. Yeah, this falls under the rubric for me of you should talk to each other about things. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is not something that needs to be... Um, it is not about you, but it's also not something that needs to be a secret struggle for you. You're talking about what other people will prefer. It's okay to ask them. Totally. And I, um, I have to cop to something where I was... Um, somebody who was very close to me uh, recently transitioned to male, and um, I... I didn't struggle with the present and who he is, but telling stories about us in the past, mm. I would I would just get all tongue-tied and not not know how to do it. And I, this tendency of mine that I referred to earlier about wanting to be respectful and so then not engaging, I didn't I didn't think of the obvious, which totally goes along with with my whole life philosophies. I should just ask him, how would you like me to talk about you in the past? And then I finally did, and then it was good. But Yes, you should talk to each other about things. I think I think we've done it. I think we've we've solved pronouns and and God as and as, <laughs> as long as we're copying to things, can I cop to something here too about pronouns? Yeah, of course. Okay, so this has been, um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, like the president on gay marriage. My position on this is evolving um, <laughs> uh, about one particular pronoun usage that I want to say that I was wrong about, but I was wrong not so long ago so this is something that you know even for people who are considered uh, about these things when we're still living in our bubble of privilege it's hard to get caught up in minutia which is to say that um i 
reacted um, sort of on a sort of on a gut level um, against the first time that somebody asked me to use the pronoun they for a singular person, mm-hmm. and my reaction was not about uh, holding solid in myself an idea of a gender binary, which I don't. My reaction was entirely linguistic. That I tend to be. Uh, Despite myself, I tend to be somewhat of a grammar prescriptivist. Um, (laughs) And I try to fight against this, but it is in there in me that when I hear people, quote, misusing, end quote, words, or uh, see the the, uh, definition of a word begin to change, that it bothers me. And my reaction to this wasn't one that thought that they was... Uh, was somehow wrong. It was that it was taking a perfectly useful plural pronoun and making the um, the meaning unclear. And part of what I came to in thinking about this was that that that's actually a good thing. That that stripping clarity from uh, from pronouns, I think, is going to help us uh, strip our stupid binary idea of gender. Mm. Um, or even identity that I feel like though it can be annoying the 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 more we let this be um, the the more we let the way we discuss our genders and selves be open ended that though it may be more difficult uh, at the moment, it actually will lead to uh, better thinking and creation of a better world and i don 't know if i 'm just being strange about thinking that way, but um but I feel like I've gotten better about about sort of initially reacting poorly to the idea of uh, a single person being they. Hmm. And um, so to sort of counteract my thing about no one can ever change, <laughs> I feel like I said earlier <laughs> about the Jesus thing, um, that even I, who sort of thinks of myself as progressive about this stuff, had a sort of difficult time with that. Um, but that remember, that if you are a privileged person having a difficult time with something, um, that's sort of okay, you're privileged, you're not used to having to think, <laughs> to think hard about things because, it, because it's tended to, you know, the, uh, uh, people tend to assume the thing that you feel about yourself. But um, it's okay to not be totally okay with this at first, but, you know, work on it. You'll get there. <laughs> Cheers! <laughs> Welcome on board, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for, thanks, for, uh, thanks for holding the train for me while I figured my shit out. <laughs> Quick interjection from Stephanie in the future, 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 future. Um, I made an awful and flagrant and honest mistake when I spoke about Cole in the outro of episode seven. And luckily we caught this while I was still in Boston. So we got to have a conversation about it with them. And so here's that conversation for you before we go on to quickies. Okay. So Dave pointed something out that I'm so glad that he did that I actually feel pretty shitty about. Um, In the outro of episode seven, when I was talking about how excited we are to have Cole on the next episode, I used exclusively female pronouns to refer to Cole. And Cole goes by they, them, and there. And um, Cole, I'm really sorry about that. And I, I am your friend, and I have known you, and I don't know why... I didn't check or ask, and um, I care a lot about those things, and so it feels like something I really should have done, and, and um, it's important to me to to be clear about honoring that and, and correcting that. And cool. Thank you so much. Um, 
you know, as somebody who does a lot of work in conservative Christian spaces and has spent a good chunk of my life in the South, I'm really accustomed to all kinds of things coming out, whether I be sir or ma'am or mm. she or him or um, hopefully not it. Um, and for me, like, when folks check in and, and are sincere and apologizing, that's really all that matters to me. I get that we are all sort of evolving in how we use language and work within a binary that doesn't make sense. Um, and, and I think that like, you've just modeled a really beautiful example of what it looks like to catch a mistake and, and make amends. Um, and uh, what a good example of how, how much easier like, this whole process could be if we all got into the habit of regularly including pronouns in our conversations with folks. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, I just recently tacked it onto like my email signature as a way of just like, let me just put it, put it out there. Uh -huh. um, and to be careful in my own interactions with folks not to presume, presume anything about somebody. So people regularly will check in with me about it because they, they look at my like tie and trucker hat combo and they're like well that person might have something to say about pronouns uh -huh. but you know what somebody who is female bodied and wearing a dress and has a flower in their hair might also Go prefer by different either. pronouns yeah. mm -hmm. and so you know let's not assume and let's like invite everybody into the option of identifying how they how they how they want mm -hmm. and is there ever um I, I mean, I love spaces where, as we do on this podcast, where we start off, when we introduce ourselves, we, we say our preferred pronoun, and I've loved being in meetings that just make, normalizes that. Mm -hmm. um, but in the, when not in that kind of space, um, I, do, I guess I do feel like I often ask, but for some reason I didn't when we met. And um, uh, is, there, is it always okay to say what's your preferred pronoun? in a casual interaction, or how would you... You know, I don't know that I would ask my grandpa that question. <laughs> uh -huh. um, Although, hey, you, I, never, you never know. It's true, it's true. Um, maybe, maybe next time I see him, I'll, I'll check in. Because, um, you know, for me, the first time that somebody ever asked was really the first time that I ever thought about it. Mm -hmm. And, because um, oftentimes, we, just, we don't even realize what sort of restrictions we're living within until mm -hmm. we're given the option of something different. Um, so I say, like, hopefully we can move into a time where it's totally normal. Um, and, and in the process, let's, like, also try to give each other a lot of grace hmm. in the midst of that. Well, thank you, Cole, for giving me grace here. And uh, thank you again for joining us on this episode. Thank you. Bye. Um, it is now time for quickies, where we endorse something or rant about something. Um, Dave, would you like to go first? Yeah, starting at the beginning of this episode where I said that I actually didn't know what I was going to do, I now have two. One really, really quick one, and then, um, and then a sort of, a sort of more, um, what do we two call quickies. that? We want to say that you should mm -hmm. do something. What? Endorsement. Yeah. Endorsement. Okay, so the first thing was a couple of years ago, the fine folks at the Westboro Baptist Church um, picketed Comic Con. And 
in the most clever and beautiful response I've ever seen to the Westboro Baptist Church, the Comic-Con nerds went out there and joined them with fake protest signs. <laughs> um, there was a guy in a Star Trek uniform with uh, a sign that said, God hates Jedi. There was uh, somebody holding up a sign that said, Thor is the one true God. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, uh, their, uh, you know, um, signs that said, um, uh, well, hold on, um, uh, I have, I have it here and we'll pull it up actually, cause that's the sort of thing that I can do on the internet. Um, God hates centuries as somebody dressed as a mutant, uh, kill all humans, somebody dressed as a robot, um, Odin is God, uh, is this thing on, uh, the Cylons destroyed the 12 colonies for your sins. So they just went out there and made this beautiful, this, this, this hateful protest into this gorgeous, silly thing that, that didn't fight against it, but revealed how ridiculous it was. And I thought that that was so cool. Mm. Um, the thing that I actually want to endorse is um, this tabletop role-playing game called Monster Hearts, which was... Written by Joel uh, MacDaldno, based on another game that I haven't played, called um, Apocalypse World. But Monster Hearts is a game where you roleplay um, uh, teenage, supernatural, uh, sexy horror romance thing, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Twilight or something. Um, but it's uh, a game that is dedicated, it's sort of like, it's in the rulebook that that this game is pushing for queer content and that your story will be more interesting and real if it includes queer content. Um, and so uh, part of its deal is to try to... It says it's another way to keep the story feral by breaking down our own expectations concerning normal, i.e. heterosexual relationships and desires. Huh. So I think that's really cool that this game... And gaming uh, has tended... Um, uh, tabletop gaming, you know, has has sometimes seen as as uh, you know dudes being dudes, Dungeons and Dragons being sort of ex you know exclusionary or something. Um, it can have that vibe, but that this game, and I'm finding a lot of the gaming world in particular is really really uh, open and interested in breaking down those barriers and in. Um, I think there's something pretty awesome about people who do not identify as queer role-playing as queer people, and that that can hmm. help make the world that we want to see. So, huh. um, if, you know, if you have... It's a, it's also it's also a really fucking fun game to play. So, if you're looking for something fun to do, um, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe try an evening with your friends be being, um, cats, calm hearts. down. <laughs> Sorry, the cat was moaning. Um, you know, give it a shot. You get to play a sexy vampire and, um, see what happens. It'll be fun. <laughs> I had no idea about that. <laughs> Great. Um, Cole, you or me? It's so much fun, you might hate it. <laughs> I do have a complex relationship with fun. Okay. <laughs> do, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I just, I'm like giddy and gleeful 
that I just found out I get to go on February 15th to Chicago to the Hump Festival, which is Dan Savage's, Dan Savage curates his amateur porn festival. And um, I've, it's only happened in Seattle for years, but now there's a tour and I'm so excited. And if any of you are going to be there, please let me know, Chicago, February 15th. But why, why I'm so excited about it as a thing is this is a celebration of the, of the beautiful diversity of sexual orientation and um, and gender identity and what everybody's into and um, we all get to sit in a room together and watch everybody else's porn and and have a big party and I think um, that that's another just reflection of the world that I would like to see is is not just tolerating or, or being okay with um, things that I may not be into but actually like holding space for a celebration of that diversity. And I'm so excited that I get to go. Awesome. I'm sorry you have to be in Chicago to do it, but I understand. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love you, Chicago. Uh, So I also have a couple of things. One, I'm super excited that coming up, My Gay Banjo is going to be on tour, visiting a bunch of cities. Um, They're two queer... Um, rocking musicians, and I'm excited they will be coming to Boston in addition to many other places, so check them out, um, because there's really nothing sexier than a banjo player. Let's be real. Word up. <laughs> a, a gay banjo player. Right, right, right. Um, and also... Oh, I thought the banjo itself was gay. <laughs> it might be. Okay. Could we rank it as gayest instrument? Sure. All right. Oh, I don't I think know. we have the authority to... To do that. I'm going to think else? about that one. Glockenspiel? The lute initially comes to mind. As a French horn player, I want to put it on the list. Oh, yeah. I know a lot of kick-ass queer bassoon players. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Double Let's just say that on. music is gay and call it a done deal. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so the other thing that I'm thinking about and want to um, put in a quickie related push for is um, really celebrating well we'd be remiss to not acknowledge that today is Martin Luther King Day mm. and so the day that we're recording this not the day we're releasing it right <laughs> okay it's all good um, January 20th so today. so last week Cece McDonald was released from prison uh, if you don't know about her story um Please jump on the internet, learn more about Cece McDonald and the injustice that she has experienced as a black trans woman um, who just had to spend 19 months in a men's prison. Um, She is now outside of the confines of incarceration, but I think it's it's important to really think about uh, whether or not she is free um, and what it means to be free in in a society that is still uh, incredibly dangerous and, and oppressive toward people of color, toward trans women, um, toward queer people. And and she is just a force to be reckoned with. And um, uh, I'm so grateful for her voice in our community and, and in our movement. Um, and and she is joined by Laverne Cox in, in raising awareness to these issues. So um, many, many thanks to them and and I am reminded in in listening to to her and reading her words 
of, of what Fannie Lou Hamer once famously said, that nobody's free until everybody's free. Mm. And so may we all continue to struggle for that day. Cheers. Cole, I think you're my new favorite person. <laughs> Dave, come to Boston. Okay. <laughs> you can cuddle with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Done. <laughs> So that's it for episode eight. Thank you so much again to Cole and to Owen O'Malley, our awesome mix engineer, and to the wonderful Drew Hornbeam, who has been helping us out so much with tech stuff that is over our heads. We're so grateful to Drew. And on our next episode, we will have a mystery guest. We're still working on confirming scheduling with them. Um, Our next crowdsource question, crowdsource question, yeah, is... Honesty is beautiful and amazing and the best thing we could all ever hope for. But what about disaster stories of being honest? What about honesty that leads to really, really hurting someone? How do you reconcile that with the honesty ideal? So we'd love to hear from you about that. We would love to hear from you about anything and everything. Every question is a crowdsource question, but that's the one that we'll hold off until we have a solid amount of responses before we address it with a guest. But we love, love, love hearing from you. Let us know where you disagree with us. Let us know other ideas you have. Send us your questions at any time. And we're, as ever, so glad and grateful to be in conversation with all of you. Take care. Okay. Um, Want to go in reverse order? Yeah, reverse order. So are you okay to go first? What's the sexiest thing? Yeah. Uh... Uh... <laughs> Uh, the sexiest thing is masculine of center queer folks confronting queer privileging of masculinity and misogyny in our culture. <laughs> Real deep empathy is the sexiest. Finding out and remembering that you don't know everything yet is the sexiest. <laughs>